Well, many of you know the name Charles Spurgeon. And of course you do. He's an extremely well-known Baptist preacher, was born in 1834, came to faith at the age of 15, and by 19 was pastoring the Metropolitan Tabernacle, so the largest church in London, where he faithfully pastored for 38 years, preaching nearly 3,600 sermons and publishing endless commentaries, books, and pamphlets all before he died in 1892 at the age of 58. So an unbelievably productive life, ministering the gospel and serving faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm wondering how many of you actually know how Charles Spurgeon came to faith. Now you can read about it for yourself in Arnold Delamore's outstanding biography, but let me just give you a quick summary. It was a Sunday morning in the middle of winter, and Spurgeon was on his way to church as he he always was, he faithfully was. He wasn't a Christian, but he would go to church every single Sunday when he got caught in the middle of a terrible snowstorm. So rather than drudging along to his normal church service, he snuck in the back of this small little country church in the middle of nowhere, where there was literally like 15 people in attendance. And because the storm was so bad, the regular pastor couldn't make it to the service. So this thin, little old man, probably a shoemaker, according to Spurgeon, gets up and he reads from Isaiah 45, verse 22, which says, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And according to Spurgeon, the man was really quite ignorant, so so not very smart at all. And it was obvious by the way he spoke, couldn't really pronounce words correctly, had trouble reading the text, but started preaching nonetheless, and was passionately calling the people to look unto the Lord Jesus, look unto Christ, not yourselves. Jesus said, look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rose again from the dead. Look unto me. I ascended to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. After about 10 minutes or so, he was done. So essentially, that was the entirety of his sermon. Listen to this. But then he looked directly at Charles Spurgeon. Remember, there's only 15 people in this service. And he says, young man, you look miserable. And you will always be miserable in life and in death if you don't obey my text this morning. But if you obey it, This moment, you will be saved. And according to Spurgeon, he saw at once the way of salvation. Couldn't remember anything else the man said, but he knew he had come to Christ. He knew that he obeyed the text, and he looked unto Jesus. Now just think about how unlikely that scenario is. Spurgeon wasn't looking for it. 
Snowstorm brought him to a place he would never have gone. Pastor wasn't even there. And an uneducated, unprepared shoemaker preached for only 10 minutes. And the man, recognized as the greatest preacher of the 19th century, comes to faith. But what an awesome reminder that salvation is a work of God. And that he can use us wherever we're at, educated or uneducated, articulate or stumbling and bumbling through every single word to open a person's heart and cause them to see the reality of their sin and the truth of the gospel, to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. You know, our passage this morning has a very similar story. So a miraculous work of God in the most unlikely of people through a less than willing, less than eager, less than able prophet who, pro- who proclaims literally eight words in the English, five in the Hebrew, and a whole city comes to faith. That should encourage us. First to repent and believe, but also encourage us that God can use us as well. If we'll just obey, if we'll just go, if we'll just be sent and faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel to the best of our ability. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, page 774, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you. I also encourage you to grab my outline. If you have your Bible open and outline right in your Bible, you'll be in great shape. Jonah chapter 3, allow me to kick us off by reading the first four verses. Jonah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. First thing you need to be reminded of is that God is being gracious to Jonah because he gives him a second chance. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. First time, as I'm sure you remember, was back in chapter 1, verse 1. You can flip there and just look at it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise to go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, so the same message he told them in chapter 1 is the same message we're seeing here in chapter 3. Only then, Jonah didn't go. Jonah rejected the call the first time. And instead of rising up to obey God, he rose up to flee from God. And he fled from God because Nineveh was the chief city of Assyria. So a political powerhouse that had done terrible things, horrific things to Israel and to others. And Jonah knows that they will rise again according to the prophet Amos. They're going to rise up and they're going to destroy Samaria, the capital city of Israel, 722 B.C. So Jonah flees because he doesn't want God to be gracious and merciful to Israel's enemy. So he boards a ship. He heads in the opposite direction from which God had called him to go. 
God, as you know, chases him down, being unbelievably gracious, not only to Jonah, but to the nations, to the Ninevites. Threatens to destroy the ship by hurling a great storm, which obviously gets Jonah's attention, as well as the crew who ultimately pick Jonah up, throw him into the sea. But through his death, figuratively, God's wrath is satisfied. So through the death of the one, the many were saved. God's grace to these sailors and to their captain. Then he's gracious to Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, appointing a great fish to rescue him. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, as we know, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. Three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. But that caused Jonah to recognize his utter dependence on God and his desperate need for the exact same grace that he was choosing to withhold from the people of Nineveh. So he repents. He cries out to God. With the voice of thanksgiving, verse 9, he promises to sacrifice to God what he vowed he would pay. God answers his prayer by delivering him. That's verse 10. Lord appointed the great fish to spit him out, to, to resurrect him, if you will, onto the dry land. And here we are again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah being called by God a second time. Now, doesn't that tell you a ton already about God's grace? That as a believer, he doesn't hold our past sins against us. Psalm 103 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So essentially, he buries our sin in the deepest of seas, and then he puts up a sign that says, No fishing, no going back there. Why is that? Because God is not like us at all. He doesn't hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. Jonah is given a second chance. How encouraging is that? But how consistent is that? Think with me about the other things that we're told about in the Bible. I mean, do you remember Abraham? How he received a second chance after he received the glorious promise of God, Genesis 12, that God would make him a great name, a great nation, and a great blessing, all through a promised son. Same chapter, seven verses later, it tells us he turns around and offers his wife Sarah over to the Egyptians to save his own skin. Then Genesis 16, he tries to manufacture the promised son through his own means, the concubine Hagar. Yet God, second chance. How about Moses, who received a second chance after he murdered an Egyptian and was forced to flee to Midian? That all took place. Exodus chapter 2. What does God do? He reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. When does that happen? Exodus 3. Raises up Moses to be a glorious redeemer, to lead his people out of Egypt, freeing them from slavery and judgment, and taking them all the way to the promised land. How about Peter? 
Peter was given a second chance after he denied Christ three times on the night of his arrest. What did Jesus do? He restored him three times. Why? Because God is the God of second chances. God is the God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, seven chances. Do you remember Peter's question, Matthew 18? Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. Seventy times seven times. See, we're supposed to offer infinite forgiveness. Why? Because God is infinitely kind and gracious to us. And you see it. Jonah 3.1. Jonah's given a second chance. I'm wondering how many of you just need to hear that message this morning. God is a God of second chances. Jonah is called by God a second time. But this time, Jonah responds to God. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Then we're told this. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breath. And we need to stop here for just a moment because there's some confusion and debate over some of the details. For starters, the translation here in the ESV where it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, is probably not the best. In fact, if you look at the notes in your Bible, a more literal, more accurate translation would be, now Nineveh was a great city to God. Now, at first glance, that might not seem like a big deal to you. But consider what's going on here in the book of Jonah. Jonah is being called to preach the gospel to a pagan Gentile nation that he hates. But according to verse 3, this is an exceedingly great and important city to God. Why is that true? Because Yahweh is God of all. He's the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, Jonah got it right back in chapter 1, verse 9, when he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Description, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is an important city to God because God made it and God made all the people in it. And he, according to 1 Timothy 2.4, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. Secondly, there's a debate over Nineveh being a three-day journey in breadth. You need to understand a three-day journey in breadth would probably be something like 50 to 60 miles. Now, the problem with that is archaeologists have found that Nineveh was probably only a mile wide at this point in breadth. So that's a pretty significant difference. But there's a very simple and plausible explanation for this difference because the author could easily be talking about greater Nineveh rather than Nineveh, the city proper. So the same way that we could talk about Hartford, the city, which is very different than greater Hartford. 
So Nineveh being a three-day journey in breath is really talking about Nineveh and all the surrounding towns that make up greater Nineveh, which, by the way, is completely consistent with how Nineveh was introduced all the way back in Genesis 10. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read the description. This is the first time that we hear of Nineveh. Genesis 10, verse 11, tells us, Now the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria, and he built Nineveh. But it doesn't just say that. It says he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Calah, and Rezin. Clarification, that is the great city. Do you hear how there's four towns listed there that make up the great city? Nineveh being the first and greatest of the four. So very easy for verse 3 to be talking about greater Nineveh. Which, by the way, if you reference those four towns and you put them together, the breadth is, listen to this, 56 miles, according to the archaeologists. Why do I tell you all of that? Because in our day and age and culture, we're constantly being told that the Bible contradicts itself, that it's not true when you look at it according to science. That's not true at all. You dig into the science, you look at what the archaeologists say, and they come back and say, yeah, that's absolutely consistent with what the Bible teaches. Hear what I'm saying? The Bible is true. And the Bible is trustworthy for us this morning. Which brings us finally to Jonah's call for, the Nineveh, for Nineveh to repent. Verse 4, so Jonah went into the city a day's journey and he called out. This is his message. This is what we have recorded. Look at what it says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. In the Hebrew, it's not even eight. It's five words. I'm sure that many of you, you're you're thinking, that doesn't sound much like an evangelistic message at all. It just sounds like a pronouncement of judgment, right? I mean, didn't didn't Jonah get the class on evangelism? Like, what happened to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? That's, That's how we have been taught often to share the gospel, isn't it? Yet I want to challenge you on that. Because all you have to do is walk through the book of Acts and look at the different sermons that it contains and you won't hear any of that kind of language at all. Instead, you hear messages that are much more like Jonah chapter 3 than you would imagine. I mean, just think about Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. He said, I'm quoting, men of Israel, hear these words. This Jesus, attested to you by God with signs and wonders, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, yet you crucified and killed him by the hands of of lawless men. He's clearly preaching sin and judgment. What happens? Acts 2, verse 37. It says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what shall we do? How does Peter respond? He says, repent and be baptized. And those who received his word were baptized, meaning they repented. 3,000 souls were added 
to their number. How about Paul? Maybe it's just Peter's preaching. No, no. How about Paul? Acts chapter 17, talking to pagan Gentiles in the city of Athens, almost an identical situation, if you will, with Jonah. Paul connects with them on the basis of an altar set up to an unknown God. But then verse 30, he says to them, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Do you know most people go to Acts 17 and say, that's how you should interact with our culture? I say, amen. But you got to preach sin and judgment before you ever get to the good news of the gospel. You read the book of Acts, you see the preaching of sin. You see them talking about the reality of judgment. They, they declare the need to repent and believe in Jesus. Very consistent with what we see of Jonah here in Jonah chapter 3. Before I move on, let me just ask you this. Does your evangelism include that kind of clarity? Does it include warnings about judgment? Do you talk about the reality of sin? Please don't misunderstand me. I'm all about telling people all about Jesus. I love telling them all about the good news. But the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. The good news isn't even good news if you don't know the bad news. Jesus dying for your sins only makes sense when you know that you're a sinner who rightly deserves God's judgment. Then Jesus makes all the sense in the world. And repenting from sin only makes sense when you know God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment is coming. It only makes sense then. And I would suggest... The people of Nineveh get that. They're understanding what Jonah's declaring. They get it. They hear it loud and clear. Jonah declares, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Look at how they respond. Verses 5 to 9. Follow along as I read. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. First thing I want you to see is that verse 5 is a summary statement and then verses 6 to 9 are the process in which it's worked out. So in summary, verse 5 says, the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice how the word of God came to them through the Jonah the prophet, but who did they ultimately believe? They believed 
God, meaning they believed the message that God was sending through the prophet Jonah, that he would, in fact, judge them. So in summary, they called for a feast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So it's a universal response because, A, the people repent, repent all the way from the highest of the high, the most elite of society, the kings and the noble, all the way down to the lowest of the low, the dregs of society, the outlaws, and the vagabonds. And what exactly, just for clarity, doesn't mean that they fasted and wore sackcloth. Well, it means that they acknowledged their sin and that they were grieving over it. And as we all know, the people of Nineveh had much to repent of because they were unbelievably wicked. Right? And they boasted of their wickedness, the horrific things that they did to people. After they sacked their cities, their stories upon stories that are just horrific breaking of live dismemberment, heads on poles being paraded through the streets, stretching people with ropes, skinning them alive, people being burned at the stake. Didn't matter if you were young or old, man or woman, soldier or citizen. The people of Nineveh had much to repent of. But I'm not sure we're all that different today. We have much to repent of. I would suggest we're currently a society that rejects the fact that there even is a God. I mean, you understand the numbers of atheists and nuns, not N-U-N as in Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns, meaning they have no religion at all. We have much to repent of as a country, as a people. Look at the process recorded here. Incredible. It starts with the king. Be the king repents, followed by all the people. By the way, I would suggest that's how all leadership works. Starts at the top. As the CEO goes, so goes the company. As the father goes, so goes the family. As the king goes, so goes the people. And they follow the king's lead. Look at what he does. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Do you see the humility? Do you see the repentance of this man? I mean, where was the king sitting? What was he wearing when he heard the good news? It says he was sitting on his throne. It says he was wearing his robe. So no doubt he's got all the pomp and circumstance around him, the high and exalted throne, the golden scepter, the long purple robe, jewels everywhere in the crown. Now where is he sitting? He's sitting in ashes. What's he wearing? He's wearing rags. You see the contrast. Riches to rags, Arrogance to humility, self-confidence to self-loathing. The king repents, and repentance looks like something. Then he issues an edict to all of Nineveh, 
I would argue this edict goes out to greater Nineveh. Why do I say that? Verse 7 says, not only does it come from the king, but it also comes from the nobles. Another argument for why Nineveh is really greater, Nineveh. But what's the command? First, that everyone should fast. Let neither man nor beast taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. That's fasting. Second, that they should be covered in sackcloth, just like the king. What is that? That's humility. Third, let them call out mightily to God. That's corporate prayer. Then fourth, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That's repentance. So the king commands everyone, everywhere, to fast, to be humble, to pray, and to repent. And repentance, in essence, is agreeing with God. So it's an, it's an acknowledgement. It's acknowledging the reality of your sin and turning from it, not just turning from your sin, but turning to God. So it's a 180-degree change in direction. In my mind, Isaiah 55 has the clearest description of what repentance looks like. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So not only your actions, but your thinking. Let the wicked forsake his way, his actions, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, your thinking. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Last but not least, notice how the king, see, understands grace. He says so clearly in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Meaning if God does not relent, if he does not turn from his wrath, he's still totally just. God is above reproach to destroy Nineveh. Why? Because they've sinned and done what is evil in God's sight. They absolutely deserve God's judgment. That's what they deserve. And the king totally knows it. He owns his sin. How does God respond? Number three, the Lord withholds judgment. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did it. He did not do it. Notice what God sees. 10a. He saw what they did. He saw how they turned from evil. He saw true repentance. He saw real change. He saw radical transformation. Repentance is not just wishful thinking. It's not just good intentions. It's not just outward ceremonies and performance. It's not just the sacrifices of bulls and goats or the offer of money to purchase God's favor, God's forgiveness, or God's grace. No. God desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart. 
which is evident and obvious with change in a person's life. He desires people to own their sin. He desires people to acknowledge their wickedness before a holy God. He desires people to be truly humble, to be truly repentant, and actually turn from their sin and walk in righteousness. That behavior God delights in and God accepts. And God responds to with mercy and grace. And we see it at the end of verse 10. God relents of his judgment. Now you might be asking, how is that even possible? I mean, if God is sovereign over all things and he knows the beginning from the end, then why does it sound like he's responding to the people of Nineveh? Why does it sound like he's reacting to them as if they're driving the ship? Doesn't he know this whole situation was going to turn out this way before it began? Well, of course he did. But it's the warning of God's judgment that God uses to bring people to repentance. And he tells us that. Jeremiah 18, he says, If at any time I declare that I will destroy a nation or a kingdom, and that nation turns from their evil ways, I will relent of the disaster, the judgment, the wrath that I had intended to do to it. So God tells us. I would suggest God tells us over and over and over again in the Bible that sin will be punished and that repentance will always, always, always bring salvation. Which is why God is constantly pleading with us to repent. Because God's unchanging, God's immutable, he will always punish sin and he will always be gracious to those who repent. God's unfailing in that regard, unflinching, if you will, both in his wrath against sin and in his mercy towards those who repent. In fact, there's no variation in his response to wickedness and faith in all the Bible. He will always and forever be opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. And he will always delight in calling sinners to himself, just like it says in Romans chapter 10, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how is that possible? How is it possible that both Jews and Gentiles, Jonah and the wicked people of Nineveh, can be forgiven of their sin and experience salvation? I mean, don't you wonder, how could God forgive a city as wicked as this? How could he look past their gross and horrific injustice? Or to put it in a modern situation, how could he save Taliban soldiers who've killed Christians, burned down towns, and gone door to door to kill innocent children just because their parents are missionaries? Or bring it close to home. How could he forgive you? And I look at my life and I look at the number of years that I live totally disregarding God, speaking evil of him, making fun of Christians. How can God be so gracious? Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 12, 41. 
He said that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And something greater than Jonah is here both in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, which means that Jonah in every way points forward to him. But how exactly, like let's just walk through this, how exactly is Jesus greater than Jonah? I'm so glad you asked. I am so thrilled to tell you, right? For, for starters, Jesus is a greater prophet Jonah is arrogant and disobedient to God, but Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. And Jesus is without sin. Jonah is sinful. Jesus is without sin. In fact, he perfectly obeys all that the Father called and commanded him to do. So he's perfect in his obedience. Jonah loves for God to be gracious to him, but he hates when he's gracious to other undeserving sinners. Well, we see that, and we will see that in Jonah chapter 4. But Jesus... He's got a heart for the nations. In fact, do you know that the Gospels tell us that he came on a mission to seek and to save the lost? And not just the Jewish people. Jonah only wants Jewish people to come to faith. No, Jesus saves people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people group. That's why they're gathered around the throne, Revelation 5, worshiping the lamb that was slain for their sin, for their salvation. So Jesus is the greater prophet who speaks a greater truth of God to the people of God. What exactly is that truth specifically in light of Jonah 3? Well, it's Jesus predicting a greater judgment. So Jonah predicted an isolated judgment on a single city, but Jesus predicts the last day's judgment. So a greater judgment than any of us could ever imagine. When the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and the dead shall arise and the book shall be opened, Revelation 20 says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire and experience eternal destruction. Jesus is also greater than Jonah, not just in the prediction of a greater judgment, but in bringing a greater salvation. Now, both Jesus and Jonah call us to repent and believe, but Jesus doesn't just call us to repent. He actually brings about the salvation necessary for our repentance right? He, he endured God's wrath once and for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He gloriously fulfills the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is greater than Jonah in every way. Why exactly will the men of Nineveh condemn this generation at the final judgment? Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. The question for you this morning is will you repent at Jesus' preaching? I mean, do you recognize when you open 
the New Testament, you go to a book like Mark, do you know the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark? Chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, repent and believe. And he gives you the grounding. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king is at hand. You understand? Jesus is telling you this morning that a greater judgment is coming. There's no better question than I can ask this morning than are you ready for that judgment? My niece just died, 19 years old. She's driving home from college. She slows down on the highway, right? Red lights everywhere. Had no idea that a car would plow into the back of her Toyota Corolla and that she would be dead in eight hours. She had no idea. A greater judgment is coming. Here's the question. Are you really ready to face your maker? Jesus is calling you to own your sin, to repent, and to believe. He offers you a glorious salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope of eternal life. but it does require you to repent and believe. Life is super busy. As soon as you walk out these doors, you'll be distracted with the next thing in life. Are you really ready to face your maker? Drive home today. How do you know you make it? You don't know that. The gospel's being proclaimed, and there's one way to respond. Repent and believe. Forgiveness of sins, hope of eternal life. I appeal to you. Your first response to Jonah 3, repentance and faith. How about you, dear believer? How is Jonah helpful to us this morning? Well, I would suggest that Jonah is tremendously encouraging to our hearts this morning, that the gospel is still the power of God for salvation. God is still in the business of saving sinners. But but here's the question for you this morning, dear believer. Do you really believe that God can do it and that God is still doing it? Do you really believe that God is still in the business of saving sinners? And do you really believe that he will use you to do it? Do you believe 
that he can save your difficult coworker? Do you really believe that he can save your atheist friend? Do you believe that he can save your disinterested family member? Do you believe that he can actually save a Taliban soldier? How about a 15-year-old boy who comes walking in to the back of his Sunday service? He saved Spurgeon. And I'm just telling you, it's pretty clear that guy wasn't much of an impressive preacher. How encouraging. Look at Jonah's message. It's not elaborate. It's not impressive. It's not even long. It's eight words. Right? Five in the Hebrew. Yet God used him. I think we're so caught up with ourselves all the time. We're thinking about whether or not we can do it, whether or not we feel comfortable. My goodness, sometimes we look at people and we make the decision, I don't think they're going to respond, so we don't say anything at all. Oh, my goodness. Matthew 10.10. Freely you received, freely give. Somebody came into your life at some point. Maybe you were... You were lucky enough to have Christian parents who shared the gospel with you your whole life. I wasn't so fortunate. I, I, I had a friend basically track me down. What does that mean? It means God used a friend to come after me, shared the gospel with me over and over and over again. And I remember blowing him off, be like, leave me alone already. Yet he was persistent and God was gracious saved a wicked sinner like me. Freely I received. Freely give. Freely you received. Freely give. You don't need to be impressive. You just need to be faithful. God's given you a unique circle of influence. I pray that you would use it I pray that you would have clarity on the gospel. You don't have clarity on the gospel. You have struggles with evangelism. Take the class. It kicks off in October. Equip yourself and then be faithful and pray that as you sow seeds and as you water those seeds, God may cause the growth that people might come to faith and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be faithful. Praise God. He's still in the business of saving sinners. May we be used by him to faithfully proclaim the same message that we received. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for your word. And I pray that you would be using it mightily in our minds and in our hearts. Father, I pray for my friends here this morning that first and foremost, they would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Father, if they're hardened in their heart through pride, I pray that you would soften that heart. I pray that you would cause it to be good soil. I pray that you'd cause it to be responsive to such a glorious salvation that they would repent and believe. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ 
that, that we would be responsive and that we would be responsible that we would know that you were gracious and kind to us, that you used a person in our lives so that we might hear the good news of the gospel and respond in faith. Well, Father, I pray that we would have faithful feet, that we would go and proclaim that to others. Stir our hearts. Give us a heart for the lost, a heart for the nations, a heart for our neighbors, that we would be faithful that we would proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.